0: Long before the Wizard of Oz became wicked, there was the Wiz. Long before compilation musicals became abundant, there was Ain't Misbehavin'. Long after Shakespeare wrote of music being the food of love, came play on. And long after Buffalo had been a punchline in a chorus line, the full Monty told its entire story in that very city. And today's guest played key roles in each and every one of those stories. Welcome to Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and our guest today is the multi talented distinguished actor, Andre DeShields. Good afternoon. Let's start, Andre, and as I said to you before we started taping, yours is one of those careers where over the course of an hour we can't possibly touch on everything. But let's start with the most current. Um, You have developed a show called Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory from Douglas to Deliverance. Uh, The press release refers to it as a solo work in progress, but it will be presented – it's being presented in the first part of February at the Abingdon. Tell us about the work in progress and what's been the progress so far.
1: Mine eyes have seen the glory from Douglas to Deliverance, had its genesis in February 2009. I'm very active on the Eastern Regional Board and the National Council of Actors Equity Association, which is the labor union that represents stage performers. I participate on the Equal Employment Opportunity Committee, among others. Every year, that committee observes Black History Month, which I think we all know is February, the shortest and coldest month of the year. (laughs) Because of the convergence of truly historical precedents that came together the beginning of 2009, the end of 2008. Barack Obama became the president elect in November 2008. On uh, January 20th, 2009, he was inaugurated as the first president of color, United States of America. The day before was the legal celebration of the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. February of 2009 also marked the bicentennial of Abraham Lincoln, and it is the month during which we celebrate the birthday of Frederick Douglass, who chose February 14th as his date of birth, although he did not know exactly when he was born. That constellation of events, inspired me to say to my committee, we need to witness this for the world at large. We need to testify about it. We need to make sure that it doesn't go unnoticed. Therefore, let's make our annual observance of Black History Month in 2009 something that makes a statement that is all-inclusive of all of those events. And it occurred to me that in order to embrace such a huge swath of history, one has to choose one American icon who represents the evolution of America from its birth to becoming the greatest democratic government on the planet and having matured to the point that we could finally elect a man of color to be the president. Frederick Douglass spoke to me. The American credo is to pull oneself up by one's own bootstraps. Douglas was born a slave and illiterate and by reading the Holy Scriptures, he became literate and he pulled himself up to a stature of a great statesman and he had no boots. Forget about the bootstraps. So Douglass in my imagination became America's Jeremiah, if you will, prophet, dreamer. And certainly when Martin Luther King made his great speeches, he referred to Frederick Douglass. When Barack Obama uh, so shrewdly won the presidency, he referred to Frederick Douglass. Any number of black leaders referred to Frederick Douglass as the person who first articulated the hopes, the dreams, and the methods by which black America could
0: prevail. So in the show, are you utilizing your own words? Are you utilizing only the words of Douglas and of Dr. King and of President Obama? How, how have you put this together?
1: All right. So this begs the question about why is it a work in progress, I spoke very glowingly about those events from the end of 2008 until the beginning of 2009. But we all know the blush is off that rose. Mm -hmm. So the piece of dramatic literature that it inspires also has to evolve. It has to change. I don't mean to say that we are ripping headlines out of the newspaper. But just as history is fluid, our perspective – on it, our reporting of it has to be fluid. So the challenge here is, I know that every individual American dreams what America could be, should be, can be. So this is an invitation for everybody to dream with me what America must be in the 21st century, in the third millennium, after this historical precedent of Mm -hmm. putting a man of color in the White House. And the only way you can do that is to keep all doors, all agencies available and open. We risk having those doors shut if we say we're ready for critical notices. We all know the risk and the dangers of that. So we're saying this is a work in progress.
0: Hmm. The, the dream isn't over. How can the work be? And on a certain level, uh, given what you're saying, on this particular piece, the work may not be completed until 2012 or possibly 2016 or after, or after because yes. you have chosen to incorporate i mean the perspective on Douglas and Dr King while it can change the historical record is written the historical record on president obama is being written every it is day being written so every day. Exactly. so on a certain level it's not fixed and it's it's a challenge because even from night to night you might find the response to what you've chosen to portray changing. That is exactly correct, because we know
1: every audience that comes to participate in theater brings in a totally unique personality. You cannot plan how you're going to perform for every audience. You first have to meet them, engage them begin the interaction, and be available to changing your mind, your heart, your perspective, your attitude. That's what the dream world is about. And the more I do my research, the more I realize that what's happening is that, this is the reason why I mentioned uh, Jeremiah, what's happening is that Douglas. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Tony Morrison, Alice Walker, I can name many others, are anticipating the present by recalling the past. And if that isn't prophecy, I don't know what is. Most people think of prophecy as looking into the future or a kind of fortune-telling. That isn't prophecy from my from where I stand. Prophecy is as I said before, witnessing what's happening right now, responding to it, and anticipating what must happen, but the what the result of the equation must be. And of course most prophets aren't around to witness that. It always has to be reported. So-and-so said this, and now it has happened. May I give Hmm. you an example? Sure. In 1961, and this is from my research with James Baldwin, who's going to appear in this piece, My Eyes Have Seen the Glory. In 1961, the ex-Attorney General, Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy, said, race relations in America are moving so swiftly that perhaps in 40 to 45 years, we may elect a Negro president. Now, it didn't hit exactly on 40 to 45 years, but 1961 plus 45 is 2006. Mm -hmm. That's when Barack Obama threw his hat in the ring as a senator from Illinois. Two years later... He was the president-elect. That's prophecy. Hmm. So that's the way we are approaching um, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory. We take witnessing from different individuals and when you put those uh, pieces of the puzzle together, they become Frederick Douglass. Hmm.
0: Well, since you're talking about prophecy being the result in some cases of looking backwards... Let's talk about how you began your theatrical <laughs> career. I love looking for a good segue. Yeah, um, we... <laughs> you were one of eleven children, yeah. raised in Baltimore. Um, were you one of those? Did you did you have to fight for attention, and that's what uh, made you become a performer, or was was there was there something else at work? No, I did not have to fight for attention.
1: First of all. Because I'm sure people are wondering, what is it like to grow up in a family of 11 children? Well, it's our own version of the United Nations. You learn very early how to deal, how to negotiate, how to compromise, how to get along. So that when you go out into the world, it isn't a big scary place really because you've done it with your 10 siblings. Also, you become independent Very early in your life, you know how to cook, you know how to sew, you know how to iron, you know how to wash your your own clothes. I don't remember ever sitting down at a table with 11 children and my two parents. You had to fend for yourself. Curiously enough, growing up, I considered myself the least talented of all the children. Hmm. My older brothers had a, a doo-wop group where they sang a cappella. That classic description under the street lamp with, a, with a, a light drizzle of rain and they're singing their hearts out. And whenever they had need for a a male soprano like Frankie Lyman or something like that, then they say, hey, Andre, come over here and sing this song. But they were the center of, the, of um, attention at the time. My sisters taught me how to dance. Hmm. My youngest brother absolutely slayed me in terms of IQ. I started school before him and when he started school, he was pushed two grades ahead of me. So it wasn't as if I was anointed as the one. What it is, is that deferred dreams have to become manifest at some time. And the dreams I'm talking about are the dreams of my mother and my father. My mother's uh, lifelong craving was to dance. But you can understand, she's born around the turn of the century, during the First World War. You understand that her parents couldn't possibly perceive of a life as a dancer a respectable profession for a young colored girl. Hmm. We were only so many years from the Emancipation Proclamation. So that was a loud, resounding no. Similarly, my father, his life craving was to sing. And his parents responded in the same way. How are you going to support a family? How are you going to bring home the bacon singing? Dancing and singing are the two least secure careers you could ever desire. So they did not pursue their dreams. Those dreams were deferred. Somewhere along the line of those 11 children, those dreams get etched into the X and Y chromosomes. Hmm. I happened to be lucky number nine. When I was evicted from my mother's womb, my first conscious thought was the stage. And I'm not exaggerating. Hmm. So I knew very early where I was headed, why I was headed, And there was no real choice.
0: Hmm. So when you headed to college for undergraduate work, you went to the University of Wisconsin. Did you go specifically to study theater?
1: No, I did not because I had learned from grade school, junior high school, and high school that for an ambitious colored boy who wanted to make his way in the theater, at best – I could play the Aaron boys in the Admiral Crichton or I could be the boyfriend of the maid in You Can't Take It With You or I could be, if someone was really going to take a risk, I could play the newspaper boy in Streetcar Named Desire. And I knew at a very early age that my my... Skill, my talent, and my dreams were bigger than that. So I just kept everything close to my vest until a time when I knew my dream could be
0: made legitimate by a role deserving of me. Well, I love there's – a, there's a short piece by you as part of a series on the Equity website um, where you talk about your first equity job. <laughs> so you were out of school, but I've got to read this. I'm not going to hand it to you. I'm just going to do the first part. But it was 1969, the final summer of love. I was a dyed-in-the-paisley hippie, sandals on my feet, elephant bell-bottoms hugging low on my hips, love beads strung around my neck, and flowers in my Jimmy Henry size afro Um, and in fact you were still in school and heard about auditions for a show in Chicago um, which became your professional debut so so you're still in school maybe this was the role that you said was the first role worthy of your talents and you went after it that is partly correct
1: now I'm in school I'm on the work study program I'm working my way through college, paying my way through college. I hear about this audition in Chicago. I'm in Madison. I think Chicago is 194 miles from Madison, something like that. At any rate, I had no real way of getting down to Chicago. So I said to a few friends of mine, I'll sell you a percentage in my career if you collect the money I need for a round-trip bus ticket to Chicago. Tom Horgan is auditioning for hair. I know I can get this gig. And three of my young lady friends did exactly that. They put their money together, and I bought a round-trip ticket to Chicago. Now, I'm totally green and wet behind the ears. So I get to Chicago, the Schubert Theater. The line circles the block twice because every hippie in Chicago is there wanting this gig so I don't get an opportunity to audition what I get is a number to come back the next day to audition now I'm thinking to myself I don't have if I use this money to go back to Madison I'm going to have to beg again to return to Chicago Hmm. so now remember this is 1969 as you read the final summer of love So I decide I will stay in Chicago. I slept in Grand Park, which you could do in those days. It's in the summer. And in the uh, Chicago uh, Museum of Art, while I'm thinking about this, how the times change, in public buildings, restrooms were always in the lobby. So you could get to them. You didn't have to pay and go through the turnstile to get to the restroom. I know that's all about security now. So after sleeping in Grant Park, I went into the public restroom, did a PTA, went back to the audition, finally got in, but wasn't hired. I was called back. So I'm out of my mind with anxiety. Now, what am I supposed to do? So I repeat the story I just mentioned to you. Finally get the audition, and uh, Tom O'Horgan says to me – he knows us all by our last names by now. He says, DeShields, do something sensitive, which I did, you know, just out of – just pulled it out of my butt kind of thing, and I got hired. So I could go back to the
0: school and say, you can now collect on that IOU. I have a very simple question, which is, had you seen Hair – previously in some incarnations so you knew, or was this based entirely on you'd heard about the show and maybe heard the cast recording?
1: I had not seen hair. I had not heard the cast recording, but I had heard Aquarius let the sun shine in by the fifth dimension. Hmm. And I knew, I mean, it spoke to my heart. I knew I had to be in this show. And I also knew that if I were granted an audition, I would get this show, and I also knew that this would be one of a series of launching pads.
0: How much of a percentage did you sell in order to get there? <laughs> well, there <laughs> and, how, and what was the term of their deal? Was it?
1: <laughs> well, there were no terms at the time. It was, it was simply, you know, an agreement among friends, that kind of thing. But here is here is how I have respected that deal because those three ladies are still in my life. One lives in, uh, outside of London, in Oxford. One lives in Chicago. And one lives in Virginia. Every time our paths cross, and they'll come to see me perform, or as I'm traveling, I'll visit them. But every time our paths cross, it's on me. We go to dinner, I pick up the tab. We're in a foreign city, I pay for the hotel. We were renting a car. I, so that's how they're collecting. So it was a good investment. Yeah, it was a great investment. On, on many levels, <laughs> both for you and
0: for them. Yeah. Um, how long did you do hair for? Uh, Fifteen months. And then after that, you got involved with a fairly seminal company in Chicago called the Organic Theater Company.
1: The Organic Theater Company, founded by Stuart Gordon, who was an undergraduate with me at the University of Wisconsin. Do you know anything about the nude Peter Pan? Mm, I think I'm about to learn. Okay. Stuart Gordon and I and a, a coterie of other radical students were not embraced warmly by main stage productions. But we had this burning desire to perform. So the first company that Stuart Gordon founded was called Screw Theater for obvious reasons. And the first production he produced and directed was Peter Pan. This is 1968. Everybody knows the story of Peter Pan. You don't know this particular version. I was Tiger Lily. But Tiger Lily, in 1968, was played as a Huey Newton kind of character. Hmm. They weren't Indians, they were Black Panthers. That kind of thing. The Lost Boys go to an island of sirens and get hypnotized, etc. In our version, the sirens, played by all female students at the university, were nude. Well, the faculty, the regents, the president, everyone was tearing their hair out, threatened to expel all of us, said to the parents, you must come to this campus and control your children. It even made the Johnny Carson show. And afterward, Stuart Gordon founded the Broom Street Theater and was so disillusioned by the life on campus that he returned to his home, Chicago, invited those people that he thought he could continue to collaborate with, I being one of them, and founded the
0: Organic theater company. Now again we were talking before we started for for a certain segment of the population Stuart Gordon is perhaps best known for directing a series of inventive, innovative and somewhat risqué Horror films, the probably the best-known being a piece called Reanimate, which actually yes. grew out of some of the work at The Organic, as that I is understand correct. it. That is correct. Um, you commented that even though you're separated by – you're on two coasts. You're here on the East Coast and he's in the West, that he's, he's always had a role for you um, in your life. In my since life. Since that time. Yes, because I eschewed training programs.
1: I honed my craft as an actor in those three companies founded by Stuart Gordon, Hmm. Screw Theater, the Broom Street Theater, and the Organic Theater Company. Uh, Dyed in the wool experimentalists, we were. We created our own work, we made our own costumes, we made our own sets, we would turn uh, coffee cans into lighting instruments. You know, when it was time to clean the toilet, we cleaned the toilet. We racked our own tickets. We made our own posters. We were truly experimental and experiential theater. Hmm. The reason he recurs in my life so often is because now that I'm into my 41st year as a professional performer, there isn't anything new under the sun in New York theater that I didn't do previously with Stuart Gordon.
0: Hmm. Now you ended up coming to New York with Stuart Gordon and the Organic, and making your Broadway debut in uh, a show that is perhaps best remembered for its brief run—a show called Warp. Yes. Um, as a young performer, as someone with dreams, presumably Warp had been successful in its production in Chicago. It played a year and one day in Chicago and it played about two weeks in New York previews and after it opened. After opening, yeah. So what was the experience for you coming to New York, making that big move at that moment, and the piece not succeeding?
1: First of all, I want to share this with
0: everybody. Warp
1: opened on Broadway in 1973. It had played for successfully for a year and a day in Chicago. So when it reached New York, it was already almost 2 years in existence. That and Warp was described as the world's first science fiction episodic
0: adventure. Yeah, I even saw that the fir- that it was billed on Broadway as like chapter one chapter or volume one. one. Yeah, it was a trilogy. Was what was done, yeah. yeah.
1: It was a trilogy. If we had been totally smart, we would have put each segment of the trilogy. Yeah, but, you know, that's um, hindsight. Hmm. The, the point I'm simply trying to make is that was 17 years before Star Wars. Hmm. It was part of the big dream coming true. Because every performer, whether he gets there or not, understands that the gold standard is New York. And in New York, the gold standard is Broadway. So we had hit pay dirt. As you say, it wasn't uh, received very well. And the company... On mass, returned to Chicago and I had to sit and make the decision do I return with the company to Chicago and cultivate another opportunity to get to New York or do I stay here where I want to be didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of but I had arrived at the vortex of theater so my decision was to stay and as many of us do uh, we I stayed uh, by the generosity of friends, sure, you can sleep on my couch, yeah, uh, yeah, you can hang out with me. that sort of thing. There happened to be four beautiful black women who took who nurtured me during
0: my salad days. My salad days only lasted eighteen months, however hmm. well i 'm very curious. there are a couple of credits that I had not known about your work. Choreographing for Bette Midler. (laughs) How did that come about? I have the distinction
1: of being the first person to make the Harlots dance. And the Harlots were Bette Midler's backup group. Right. It came together over potato salad. Now, I'm in Chicago, still working uh, with the Organic Theater Company. Bette Midler is a friend of Joe Mantegna who is my neighbor in the same apartment dwelling. And Joe and I started out in hair together. Hmm. He um, graduated to playing burger and I graduated to playing Hud. Bette Midler comes to Chicago, and she's playing a venue which no longer exists, but at the time it was the cabaret to play, the supper club to play. It was called the Happy Medium in the heart of the Rush Street uh, area. So while she was there, she comes to visit Joe. Joe invites me up to meet Bette Midler. And Bette laments about not being able to find good potato salad, one of her favorite (laughs) dishes. So I make some of the best (laughs) potato salad (laughs) on the planet. So you can guess the rest of that story. While we're eating potato salad, Beth says, I wish my girls could dance. She referred to the Hollins as her girls. I said, uh, what kind of dancing do you want them to do? Oh, I don't know, but they just sort of stand there. I said, well, maybe I can help. Beth invited me to see a performance at the Happy Medium. And true to her word, her three beautiful singers stood there. But they probably thought Isn't this our gig? You're the star. You dance kind of thing. Sidebar. One of the original harlots was Melissa Manchester. Hmm. So I love the show. I'm checking it out. I speak with Bette afterwards. She, She creates a rehearsal opportunity the next day. I come in and I get the three ladies to do something very simple because you don't want to detract from the star, but you do want to look as if you are animated, alive. So something as simple as step, touch, step, touch, turn around, and step, touch, step, touch, shake your white booty, and step, touch, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And there they were. Because when you put three of them doing that, it's choreography. (laughs) Bette was satisfied. So for two of her major New York productions, Clams on the Half Shell and... The other name isn't going to come to me right now. I served as her choreographer.
0: How amazing. Yeah. As you talk about steps along the way, clearly a major event for you was landing the title role in The Wiz. And how did you come to the role? And, and what was – I mean that show was a major experience in terms of telling – a familiar story from an African-American perspective and at the time, groundbreaking. It, it was one thing for Pearl Bailey to go into Hello, Dolly. It was another thing to literally retell the story. T- tell me about The Wiz for you. I
1: have to quickly mention Chicago again because coming from Chicago in Warp, the character I created for Warp was called Alexander, the Unconquerable, Ruler of the Sixth Dimension. And for that character, again, remember, this is 1972-73 when Michael Jordan must have been knee-high to a grasshopper. But I've got a shaved head, Hmm. glistening bald head with an 18-inch Taurus Bulba warlock coming out of the back. Now, Chicago audiences have gotten used to that because we played for so long. And here we are coming to New York, the center of self-expression, we thought. When I arrived in New York, people ran away from me like the Martians hmm. had landed. Now, I begin there because when the Wiz started auditioning, and this is the summer of 1974 – I'd only arrived in January of 1973. I went in like that Chicago freak alien hippie to audition for The Wiz. And they were like, "Uh, what? The gate is next door, that (laughs) kind of thing. At any rate, they saw me for The Scarecrow. I didn't cut it. They saw me for The Tin Man. I didn't cut that. They saw me for The Lion. I didn't cut that. This is also a testimony to how the audition process has changed. Because the auditions were held in a dark and majestic theater. And the creative team was sitting in the audience. And the auditionees would wait in the wings. And then they'd be called out. And they could audi- audition from downstage center. Not in some cold uh, studio. Okay. So I'm about to be dismissed because they've seen me on three different occasions for three different roles, and I didn't cut any one. Here's something else you could do then, you can't do now. I said to the producer, Ken Hopper, God rest his soul, I really would like to audition for the role of the Wiz. He explains to me, oh, no, we're going the way of the film, and we're looking for someone older. I begged, this is not an exaggeration, I begged, please, Mr. Harper, please, let me audition for The Wiz. So he acquiesced. They gave me a day and a date. So I went home, and that description you read about me when I was auditioning for hair, mm-hmm. I restored that. Hmm. And when I came in to audition for the character role of the whiz, that's what I looked like. Hmm.
0: The hippie again.
1: Yeah. And I sang Wilson Pickett's Midnight Hour. And I'm so happy to be able to share this with you. Charlie Smalls, the composer, God rest his soul, stood up in the darkened, majestic theater and said, quote, that's my whiz. Hmm. Now, why? Because Charlie Smalls was inspired not only by Wilson Pickett in writing the score and Otis Redding, but Joe Tex. Hmm. And if anybody knows the music of Joe Tex, they know that the Whiz was patterned on his approach to rhythm and blues.
0: Hmm.
1: So that's the story
0: there. That show, as I said, was in many ways a landmark for for African-American performers and African-American audiences. Were you aware of that at the time or was it simply a great gig in a great big show?
1: It was definitely a great gig and a great big show. But I – we all were aware of the miracle that was taking place and that – we were a part of. We certainly had no idea that it was going to win seven Tony Awards and that it was going to generate this film starring Diana Ross. We couldn't have guessed those specifics. But this is what I mean that we knew. We had fared so badly during the pre-Broadway tour Hmm. We opened in Baltimore, which was so delicious for me because that's my hometown. And my, not A large portion of my family turned out. After Baltimore, we went to the Fisher Theater in Detroit, where some deep political stuff went down. Our original director was Gilbert Moses. In Detroit, he was let go, and Jeffrey Holder, who had... Theretofore, been only the costume designer, became also the director. And the pieces began to fall together. Hmm. Then we were in Philadelphia. We were received so negatively that when we opened on January 5th, 1975, in the Majestic Theater on Broadway, opening night, the producer posted the closing notice. Because he did not think we would last two weeks and producers have to do it two weeks or else, et cetera. Now, it was word of mouth and Ken Harper's visionary approach to how to promote the show. This may, this is something that people don't really associate with the Wiz. We were one of the first shows to make use of live action commercials on television. Hmm. So when this commercial with all these beautiful black talented people reached into the homes of beautiful black people, they came out in droves. Hmm. We don't care what the critics have to say. We
0: must see this. And after seeing it, it was loved. You went out on the national tour as well yes, I did. of The Wiz. And if somebody were simply cursorily looking over your resume, they'd say, oh, look, and then after that, he went to Broadway and Ain't Misbehavin'. But that's not quite the story of Ain't Misbehavin', and I've talked about it before with people on this program, but – It's interesting that after this great success, you got involved in a project that was being performed at the old Manhattan Theater Club in their cabaret space on East 73rd Street, which was a space that during the day doubled as their box office, and they'd set up a little platform at the end of the room and do this little show. My first question is, very simply, after having the success and acclaim of The Wiz, what made you willing to perform in a space that probably made the organic look like like a pretty good gig.
1: <laughs> to thine own self be true, and then thou canst be false to any man. There came a time in the whiz, and I still use this as my litmus test. I woke up one morning to do my matinee, and... I said to myself, I don't feel like doing this. And I realized I was about to go on automatic pilot. You can't do that. Hmm. Everything suffers, not only your art, but your connection with your audience. And then ultimately you will physically suffer by doing something you don't want to do any longer. And it wasn't a matter of the show degenerating. It was a matter of my growing and needing to inhabit another character. I certainly didn't know it was going to be the Viper in Ain't Misbehaving*. Now, I turned in my notice to the Wiz, and everyone thought, are you crazy? No, I'm not crazy, but you don't want to work with me if I don't want to be here, that kind of thing. The transition was another gig with Bette Midler hmm. when she did her gig at the, uh, at the um, Copacabana when it used to be on 61st Street, I think. So that got me over the hump of not being in a show. When I finished that gig with Bette, which would have been November 1977, I get a call. The Manhattan Theater Club is doing this musical tribute to one of the jazz greats, Fats Waller, and we're looking for this type and that type, and we'd like you to come in. Which I did. Which Ken, Ken Page did. Which Amelia McQueen did. Which Nell Carter did. Which Irene Cara did. And we became this five-person juggernaut, the second miracle in my New York career. Because we were aware then, this, this is something we're not in control of. There's a force making this happen. We don't know where it's going to end up, but we do know we're involved with something truly unique, great, unprecedented. And the proof came when one day, there's a, the the first act ends with the song, This Joint is Jumping. It's a rent party uptown in Harlem. Things get a little messy. A guy pulls out a gun and he shoots it. Of course, it's a blank in the show. But we shoot the gun and this lady in the audience jumps up, uh, nearly catatonic. It was Jacqueline Kennedy. So consider now that was that's a truly awesome experience. I know today we use awesome; it's become a cliche. You give you give a, a piece of gum to your friend. Your friend says awesome, but awesome means evoking both terror and wonder. So that moment when that blank went off, the wonder was coming from the performance, the terror was coming from Mrs. Kennedy. And we all know why. However, the ultimate realization for us backstage after the show was over was, if Jacqueline Kennedy is coming to see this show, we must be doing something right. The next week, Manny Eisenberg was in the audience. The next week, Gerald Schoenfeld was in the audience. And then we knew.
0: And as they say, the rest is history. Is history. I'm going to speed along because because our time grows short, and we've, we we have so much to cover. I'm going to jump ahead to what ultimately was your next Broadway appearance. Again, it did not start out as Broadway, and that is Andre de Shields' Harlem Nocturne, for which, if the credits are correct, you were the director, the book writer, the choreographer, wrote some of the songs, conceived it. And played the lead. Yeah. That's, that's an awful lot of credits. <laughs> it is. Now, it started out at La Mama. La which Mama, is a, in, yeah. Which is, a, which is a small venue and, again, was was taken up after people saw what it was. It's, it's fascinating that you start projects presumably out of, out of love out and of fulfillment love. and they grow.
1: Um, because the genesis of the project is love. There is, there is something that gnaws inside me or any creative person that says, I need to be let out or I'm going to eat you up. You find the community of collaborators who also know that feeling and you come together and you create a piece of art that gives the opportunity for every individual to give expression to that feeling, to exorcise that demon. When demons are exorcised correctly through artistic expression, they become angels. They sprout wings and become angelic.
0: And the people who uh, witness that are seduced. But you talk about collaborators. You could almost have said, I am my own collaborator when I list all of these credits on one show. Is that something you would relish doing again, that many? No, um, only because, it isn't because
1: I've lost the skill or the desire. It is because that kind of wearing of so many hats is perceived in the industry as vainglorious. Mm. And that project, when it moved to Broadway, got dismissed as a vanity project, hmm. and it wasn't at all. However, uh, my collaborators, one of which was Mark Shaman.
0: It was in the show,
1: yeah. in fact. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, when you collaborate, you don't make a contribution and then go away and kibitz. Mm-hmm. You make the contribution, and then you continue to refine it by participating in it.
0: Hmm. That's
1: true collaboration.
0: Fascinating. Now, since you used the 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 word vanity and accusations of vanity, I would think that the the absolute opposite of vanity for someone who has been in the whiz in Ain't misbehaven who's had a show come to Broadway, in which you played and performed so many roles, is to go to grad school in the mid nineteen eighties. You. Told me that you got your graduate degree from the NYU Gallatin Program in 1988. Why did you decide to go back to school then? Well, to, to be exact, I received the degree in '91.
1: Oh, I began studying for the degree in '88. Okay. After "Ain't Misbehaving" on Broadway, I performed for a year on Broadway. I then took it to the West End. It was my first time performing in London. I then did a partial national tour in Los Angeles and San Francisco and San Diego. It's always important to take your art to communities of people who have nurtured you, who love you, and who anticipate your next adventure. And then I took it to Paris. I'd never been to France. And then I took you to Alaska. I'd never been to Alaska. And then I took you to Cape Cod. I'd never been to Cape Cod. Those were all tremendously satisfying experiences. But when I finally returned from doing so much traveling to New York, every offer that came to me was to do another production of Ain't Misbehaving, hmm. And I had to scratch my head, and I thought, Oh, I get this. As a young boy, I dreamed of theater as a way of life. I've now achieved it. The question is, what do I do now? I could have easily continued up to this point doing a misbehaving. But what occurred to me was, theater must be a way to life. Just flip that preposition. And the only way I knew to life was the pursuit of knowledge. So I waited for the opportunity, and this is ironic, where I knew I would be in New York long enough to take a full semester of courses and that I would have the money, NYU, hello, to pay for it. And what made that possible? the ten year reunion of the original cast of ain't Misbehaving. Hmm. so in 88 when I knew I was going to be six months on Broadway I knew I had the, the the scratch the money and you knew the material I knew the material and I knew that I could get a semester under my uh under my um, arm because what I had I knew what I had to do was once I had qualified for going to grad school I had to let my advisor and the faculty know that I was serious. I was going to take a full load of courses, although I was working on Broadway. I was going to ace everything so that when it was necessary for me to travel, they would say, okay, we can trust this student. He's going to get the work done. Hmm. Interesting.
0: So what did you get your graduate degree in?
1: African-American studies.
0: Because we're only able to survey all of the work you've done, we've been talking a lot about musicals and you have done many plays. I was very intrigued as I looked over some of your credits that you have been in The Man Who Came to Dinner as Sheridan Whiteside. You have been the stage manager in Our Town. Uh, You have played Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. A number of years ago, I believe it was August Wilson, said – He didn't believe that African-American actors should appear in roles that were traditionally written for white actors. He didn't think that worked. You've obviously had the opportunity to do it and I'm wondering what your take is on on that position and on being able to play these roles that have probably been denied to so many uh, African-American, Latino, Asian-American performers. You've asked and answered the question – on that issue,
1: I'm exactly on the antipodal end of the spectrum than August Wilson. People sometimes refer to me as the poster boy for non-traditional casting. That was only part of the catalyst. Certainly, in a profession that's called theater, that's based on a community of Artists, storytelling, the basic tenet of which is to reflect the society whose story that they are telling. And when you find a flaw in that society, you reflect it and then go about correcting it. That cannot happen in a situation when certain roles are the exclusive domain of white actors or the exclusive domain of any ethnic group. I believe in cultural literacy as the most important proponent of theater. Because we are storytellers, because we are keepers of the faith, because we are responsible for witnessing history and maintaining its continuum. And because we are shadows, obviously, but we are the only gods that people have any longer, and that was the original impetus for going to the theater when the Greeks built their amphitheaters to seat 14,000, 20,000. They knew the entire polis would come, and the entire polis would show up, because the reasons for going to the theater was to be in the company of the gods. I've always wondered why the word theology, the study of gods, looks so much like the word theater. And then I found out. Theater in its ancient Greek etymology means the place where gods are viewed. Hmm. So you cannot be exclusive. You cannot... Be elitist about something that is so democratic, something that belongs to everybody, and call yourself a theater artist, hmm. regardless of your proficiency.
0: Coming back to musicals, I want to bring up a couple more that you did on Broadway. First of all, play on and we're as we talk about you know, traditionally Caucasian roles play on converted <laughs> Shakespeare's Twelfth Night into a of um, an African American version and told it using the music of Duke Ellington and put it in certainly a different language and a different vernacular. Um, what was uh, what was the experience of of doing play on? First of all, I want I want to share this with
1: everybody. 41 years being a professional performer, I haven't had anything but beautiful experiences. They change incrementally. Some experiences are more beautiful than others. Some experiences are less beautiful than others. Some experiences are brilliant. Some are imperfect. But none are anything other than beautiful. And this was an opportunity for me to get introduced to Shakespeare in a vernacular that I had become a master of. Hmm. So the character in Twelfth Night is Festy. The character I play is Jester. Clowns are always the conscience of the play. And if they're royalty, which there is in that play, they're always the conscience of royalty. And that's what I was, my character anyway, in Play On. It was, again, a growing experience. It was my first Tony nomination. Unfortunately, it was misunderstood by the critics. That happens a lot in this industry. And it didn't get the long run that I believe it deserved.
0: But it is totally memorable. What about it do you think was misunderstood? Um, what, What do you think they didn't get? It was a similar response
1: to our bringing the element of soul to the Wizard of Oz. Hmm. Our bringing the element of jazz to Shakespeare. And I believe if Shakespeare were alive, he would embrace jazz instantly. Hmm. But the idea that we had what we call flipped the script, that we had appropriated something Eurocentric and blackified it. Hmm and made it absolutely accessible to an audience. It made the purists, it's stuck in their crawl.
0: Now, since you say all of your experiences have been wonderful, I have to say, having seen you in Full Monty, Full Monty gave you an opportunity to have an absolute showstopper. And you'd been you'd been going through the show feigning um, <laughs> some some physical limitations and you suddenly got to break loose in your big number. What was that and, and the audience just went berserk when you did it? What what was it like to throw off that persona and just be the center of it all. It's the most perfect theater I've ever done.
1: That moment in the full Monty. I say that because, and you probably know by now that I love language. The ancient Greek word for actor is hypocrite. Now hypocrite has a pejorative connotation today. But hypocrite in the sense that We are imposters in service to the catharsis of the audience. So we will wear any mask. We will put on any pretense so that the audience can experience these big emotions. And you must ride high. You must go very close to the sun so that you can fall very low so that the audience can experience this roller-coaster of emotion. That character did it in a very populist vernacular. He comes on as a decrepit old man. And the emotion that he evokes is pity. Oh, this poor guy. It happens with the characters on the stage. It happens with the audience. What is this poor old guy going to do? And then, through the magic of opportunity and music, again, he flips the script and he becomes a child. He go, he's, You meet him, he's 75. By the end of that moment, he's 14 years old. And then the emotion that's evoked is this tremendous joy. It's not a tragic uh, piece of theater, but that's the best kind of theater you can experience. Huge pity for the character and then tremendous joy Hmm. for that same character. And it worked every
0: time. (laughs) Throughout this conversation... You have been making reference to the Greeks and to ancient theater. In recent years, I want to acknowledge you've done a lot of work with classical theater of Harlem and have had the opportunity to play various classical roles there and elsewhere and truly classical, not just something from 30 or 40 years ago. I'm just wondering where the interest, the fascination – with the classics comes from for you in that so many of your major performances have been in a very populist idiom.
1: I will try to be succinct. My soul is old and my spirit is large. And that qualifies me for the classics. One of the unfortunate elements of the evolution of Africans in the new world is that our pantheon of gods have nearly disappeared, have nearly evaporated. Now, I mention that because one of the reasons that Shakespeare is considered the greatest writer in the English language And one of the reasons that the canon of dramatic literature is monopolized by Eurocentric writers is that they have had an opportunity to begin their storytelling with a pantheon of gods, of supernatural beings. After the story begins there, it then evolves to telling the story of the vicars, the representatives of these supernatural beings on earth, which are kings and queens. After you deal with the kings and queens, you can then include the voice of the people. That very important first step does not exist for African Americans. We don't have a pantheon of gods to tell stories about. We don't have an echelon of royalty to tell stories about. All of our stories, regardless of how brilliant they are, August Wilson, notwithstanding, are about street people. Hmm. I found the, the opportunity to add godliness, divinity, and royalty to my experience and to my lineage by going into the classics, knowing that I was taking in, taking with me an old soul and a big spirit.
0: Hmm. Well, with that, we have gone from gods and man... Royalty and clowns, musicals and plays, new works and classics, in the course of an hour. Andre de Shields, thank you so much for being with us today for Downstage Center.
1: Namaste.
0: Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of the Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.